Well, take out your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Acts. Turn to the book of Acts this morning. We are starting our new series, which I will, on the Sunday mornings that I am scheduled, continue in, and I'll be preaching through the book of Acts, verse by verse, all along the way. Just by way of introduction, uh, to give you some understanding of the background of the book of Acts, this part's going to be a little bookish, uh, but I'll get to the preaching part in a minute. Uh, The book of Acts was written by Luke. Luke was a Gentile. He was also a trained physician, a doctor. He was a companion of the Apostle Paul and a friend of his. And Luke was an eyewitness to several of the events that are recorded in the next 28 chapters of the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, occasionally you'll see it say, and we, because Luke accompanied them in that particular event. So he didn't witness all of it, but he was there for quite a bit of it. And so uh, Luke wrote the book of Acts. Warren Wiersbe says that Luke wrote it with the mind of a historian and the heart of a physician. It's interesting, if you've been reading through your Bible and you read through the Old Testament, some of the narrative books of the Old Testament, and then you start reading the book of Acts, you'll notice that Luke wrote the book of Acts in the style of the Old Testament. So it seems very, very similar to the way uh, the Old Testament authors would describe the events in their day. Luke wrote in such a way to continue the story of what God was doing through his people, and in the book of Acts, his people is the church. And Luke begins his book with the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is volume 1. The book of Acts is volume 2. And both books are addressed to the man by the name of Theophilus. He's likely was a Roman official or nobleman that came to Christ. One author wrote that at the reception of the book, Theophilus was probably already a Christian. And Luke wrote the book to help him and others like him have a reliable account of the beginnings of Christianity. The book of Acts centers around the history and activities of the early church, which you'll notice uh, as, you're, as Luke describes the church, as Luke describes the things that the church does, he doesn't really go into detail as far as their methods or traditions or the details or preferences of their services are concerned. We don't really know a lot about what church services look like in the book of Acts because Luke doesn't really go into detail about those things but rather his focus is on how the early church accomplished the mission that Christ gave it, which was spreading the gospel. There's many themes in the next 28 chapters of the book of Acts. It's the story of the beginning of the church. It shows how the gospel was meant for Gentiles as well as the Jews. There's a lot of time devoted in the early church and in the first several chapters of the book of Acts as to how the Gentiles don't have to become Jews in order to be Christians. Uh, There's a lot devoted to that topic. It shows the spread of the gospel. It shows how everywhere the gospel went, opposition followed it. And with that opposition came opportunities for the spread of the gospel. It's a story of the progress of the word of God and how triumphantly that progressed. It declares to Christians what it means to be the church 
and how we can live in accordance with the pattern that the early church has set. And it shows what men can do with the power of the risen Savior. Scholars believe that the book was written about A.D. 63, 63 A.D., during uh, the time where Paul was first imprisoned in Rome. Uh, If it was any later than that, uh, we would wonder why Luke left things out. For example, the burning of Rome, uh, the martyrdom of Paul, Jerusalem itself was destroyed in A.D. 70, and so many people believe that it was written prior to all of those events. That's a very basic understanding of the book of Acts. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to launch off into the second volume of Luke's book to Theophilus. And we're going to look in Acts chapter 1. We'll read through verse 8, but we won't quite get to verse 8 today. So follow along with me as I read Luke, or Acts, Luke volume 2, right? Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. It says, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. This morning we're going to divide this portion of verses into two parts. And you see, first of all, in verses 1 through 3, the continuation The continuation, as Luke describes it, he says in verse 1, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God." There's two observations about these three verses. Notice, first of all, the story, according to Luke, resumes. The story, it resumes. He says, all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. What is he implying there? He's implying that it's all being continued now. The book of Acts is a continuation of Jesus' teachings and ministries. Uh, These verbs here, where it says to do and to teach, that's the infinitive form of the verb. That means those things are still underway and in process. Jesus, according to Luke, is still doing and teaching through the power of the Holy Spirit. He said in in volume 1, Theophilus, I told you all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now I'm going to tell you what he will continue to do and to teach through the Holy Spirit and his church. 
Jesus promised this in John 15, 26, when the Comforter is come, he says, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Jesus also said that when the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, is come, that they would do even greater things than he had already done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is what the book of Acts shows us, that Jesus continues to do and to teach through the church. Jesus finished the work that he came to do. He said, the Son of Man has come to, to seek and to save that which was lost. He came and paid for our redemption on the cross. We are redeemed, as Peter says, with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. And hanging on that cross, knowing that he had done the work that he was sent to do, knowing that he had paid the penalty for sin for all mankind, he proclaimed his work of redemption complete. It says in John 19, verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, and other passages say that he said this with a loud voice, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. He finished the work of redemption. He purchased our pardon for sin on the cross. And although he finished what he came to do on the cross, he had just broken ground on the foundation of the church. And he told Peter and his disciples that he himself would be the one building the church. In Matthew 16, verses 8 through 19, he says to Peter, I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He says, Peter, I will build my church. Jesus Christ has not retired. He's very much at work today. And just as the book of Acts is a continuation of the work of Christ on earth in and through that first generation of believers, Jesus Christ is working in and through his body, the church today, and in and through you in particular. If you don't know him personally, the Bible makes it very clear he's working on you. He's promised that he will draw you. He's drawing you right now. John 12, verse 32, Jesus promised, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. He draws all men to himself. He wants to save you. I love 2 Peter 3, 9, where it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants to save you. He wants you to repent and come to salvation. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Why would he want all men to be saved? Well, because he loves you. John 3.16 says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever, I love that, ver that word whosoever because that means me and that means you, believeth in him should not perish 
but have everlasting life. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, He is purposely working in and through your circumstances to draw you to Himself. And you must receive Him in faith in order to be saved. If you do know Him, He's working in and through your circumstances for your good and according to His purposes and His plan. Romans 8.28 says, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. He works all things together for your good and according to His plan. He'll never leave you, the Bible says, as the song also was sung today. Hebrews 13 verse 5 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have, for He has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. No matter what happens to you in life, you have your heavenly Father. And He is always with you. Jesus said at the end of the book of Matthew, Matthew 28, verse 20, giving the great commission, He said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He works in all of your circumstances. And not only that, He knows what you're going through. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And He will keep working in you and through you until the very end. Paul suffered many many things, many difficulties, many trials. But he told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Timothy, I've gone through some pretty tough trials. I'm in prison for my faith. I don't know where it's going to take me, but I know one thing. God's not going to let me go. I'm saved. I'll always be saved until I see him face to face. 1 Thessalonians 5 is the same exact uh, hope. It says, In the very God of peace, sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Will do what? Preserve you wholly and blameless until the coming of Christ. The story of the work of the Savior resumes in the book of Acts. It continues in His church, and it continues today in your life. Do you know Him? He's still working. He's still drawing. He still wants you to come to salvation. And if you do know Him, are you well acquainted with the fact that He is working in your life day by day? The story resumes. And then notice the Savior's resurrection. In Luke's first volume, the Gospel of Luke, it ends with Christ's resurrection and ascension. But it's very succinct. If you were to lead, uh, read Luke 24, you would kind of get the impression that all, everything that Luke describes as Jesus rising from the dead and appearing to the, uh, the disciples and ascending up into heaven, you kind of get the impression because of how brief it all is that it all happens on Easter Sunday and then it's done. But Luke goes into greater detail here in the book of Acts, it happened over an extended period, he says, of 40 days. Paul makes a list of Christ's post-resurrection appearances in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, 
how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, and of the twelve. And after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of the whom the greater part remain unto this present. But some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and Paul also saw him uh, later on as well. What you may not realize is that between Easter and Pentecost are 50 days. And for 40 of those days, Jesus prepared his disciples for when he would ascend back to heaven. He spent 40 days with his people, with his disciples, preparing them for when he would leave them. The bodily resurrection of Christ is certain and sure. It says in verse 3 that he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. He sat down with them and he ate with them. He invited them to touch him. He met with them over and over and over again for a month. They were certain and they were sure it really was Jesus. They saw him. They spent time with him for over a month, for 40 days. He really was risen again from the dead. There was no doubt in their mind. And the incredible truth is this, that you and I, we can know Jesus too today because he's alive. You can spend time with him. You can talk with him. You can share your burdens with him. You can draw strength from his word. You can rest in his promises. You can revel in his grace. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in Revelation, I don't have it in your notes for you, and I'm probably not going to quote it word for word, but it says in Revelation that if any man will answer Christ as he knocks on the door of their heart, he'll come in and sup with them, right? He'll have dinner with you there uh, in the secret place. You can know him personally because he's alive. You can know him better every single day. And as a Christian, you ought to know him better every single day. You ought to be growing in Christ. You ought to be moving closer and closer to your Savior. Peter, who saw Christ, said in 2 Peter 3.18, Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be both glory, both now and forever. Amen. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on that one verse, and I love the illustration he gave. He said in his sermon, the way to stand is to grow. The way to be steadfast is to go forward. There's no standing but by progression. If you see even such a simple thing as a child's toy rolling along your floor at home, you will observe that it will always be upright as long as it keeps on rolling. But as soon as it stops, down it goes. So it is with the Christian. As long as he is in motion, he stands. But if it were possible for the motion to cease, then the Christian would fall from his steadfastness. Glory be to God, he will keep you from falling, and we shall be presented faultless before the throne of Christ. The way to stand then is to go forward. The way to be steadfast is to progress. The way to be alive, according to the apostle, is to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All of this to say, as they say down here, Jesus is alive. The work continues. He's not retired. And your life ought to reflect that truth because you ought to know him. You ought to be growing in your knowledge of him. You ought to be fellowshipping with him yourself. The book of Acts is a continuation. And we find that in chapter 1. We also find in chapter 1 the correction. 
some correction here. Look what it says in verses 4 through 7. And being assembled together with them, Christ commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Isn't it interesting? The disciples still didn't quite understand their purpose and God's plan. They had been told time and time again, Jesus had said, just read the Gospels over and over again, that he was going to leave them. I'm going away, John 14. Let not your heart be troubled, right? He had told them time and time again, the Holy Spirit would come. But at the cross, there they saw all of their hopes and dreams crushed at the cross. And now Jesus was alive and with them, and all of those hopes were renewed, and he was immune from death, right? They can't kill him. What are the Romans going to do? They can't kill him. He's immune from death. Christ, now are you going to put your kingdom in order? Surely he would take his rightful place as the eternal Jewish king, the son of David. But Jesus corrects his disciples in verses 4 through 7. He corrects them in two ways. He says, first of all, stay in Jerusalem. These men had homes elsewhere. Some of them even had wives. But they were not to go home. They were not to take up their previous occupations either. Stay in Jerusalem, Jesus said, and wait. They had been tempted to go back to their previous lives after the cross. They'd even gone fishing quite unsuccessfully before Christ had found them there on the shore. John 21, verse 3, Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. They went back to work, but they had no power in their work. It was only when Christ showed up that they had any success at all. John 21 continues the story in verse 6. It says that Jesus said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw in for the multitude of fishes. You know what's fascinating about this whole thing? Jesus goes on to restore Peter because Peter had denied him three times. Go back to the beginning of the, of the Gospels, and you'll find Jesus did the same thing before with Peter. Lord, Jesus says to Peter, Go out into the deep and cast the net. Lord, we have fished all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll, I'll send out the net. And Jesus repeats the same miracle again. Jesus says to his disciples, stay in Jerusalem. Wait for the promised Holy Spirit to come, because without me, you are nothing. They needed his power. They needed his presence to accomplish their mission. Without the Spirit of God, as one preacher said, we can do nothing. We are ships without wind, branches without sap, and coals without fire. We are useless. Christ said, stay in Jerusalem until you have the power of the Holy Spirit. How many Christians today are truly walking in the Spirit of God? 
How many churches today are filled with this power and his presence? I don't remember which author said it, but it's a very sobering thought that if God were to remove the spirit from the church, how many would even notice? How many are attempting to work for God in their own strength, under their own power, substituting methods in the place of God's might, or programs in the place of God's presence, or opinions in the place of the oracles of God? How many are fulfilling what 2 Timothy 3.5 warns us of, that they will have a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof? From such, turn away. Do you know the methods are failing the American church? Church attendance in this country in the last couple of years dropped below 50% for the first time ever. It is now in the minority to go to church. Since they started measuring church attendance in America, the majority of Americans attended some form of church, but that's no longer the case. One in three churchgoers stopped attending church at all during the pandemic, and they have not come back. You can't win the world with peppier music or hipper preachers or club-like decor or clever marketing. All those things may have worked when going to church was the thing to do. It was popular when it was sociable. But as the world darkens around us, only one thing stands out, and that's the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one thing that will stand out in church is that the presence of the Holy Spirit is in the lives of believers that they can see the obvious working of Almighty God. Before you head out into your world every morning, do you wait a little while in Jerusalem? Christ said, wait, stay in Jerusalem until you have the power of the Spirit. What did they do there in Jerusalem? We'll find they spend a lot of time praying. They were together with one accord in prayer. Before you head out into your world every day, do you wait a while in Jerusalem? Do you cry out to God in secret prayer? Do you meditate on the truth of his word? Then and only then should you step out into your world walking in the Spirit. Romans 13 says, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting or drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Colossians chapter 3 is a similar thought. It says in verse 12, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
giving thanks to God and the Father by him. The disciples had been without Christ before. And I bet they dare not step out without him again. What about you? Are you having any success in your Christian law in your Christian life? Or do you feel stuck, trapped, spinning your wheels, powerless and defeated? Maybe, just maybe, you've been stepping out every morning in your own strength. Maybe it's time for you to spend a little time waiting in your Jerusalem and step out in his strength rather than your own. Psalm 61 says in verses 1 through 4, Hear my cry, O God. Attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings. Do you spend time with God like that? Do you stay in Jerusalem a little while before you try to go out into the world? And then notice he also says, stay in the present. They said, all right, Jesus, is now the time? Is it kingdom time? They wanted to know all the details of the kingdom. Is it now? Is it time? Will all finally be fulfilled? In their speculations about the future, they would lose and had lost their perspective on the present. The earthly kingdom was not going to unfold at all the way they thought it would. They were going to be the means of spreading the message of the coming kingdom. Christ's kingdom was coming, but first his heralds would proclaim the message of the kingdom far and wide. What was the most important thing was the immediate task of spreading the gospel of Christ uh, from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. They were to be his witnesses. The spread of God's kingdom was to take place through his disciples, empowered by his spirit, and this was what Jesus left with his disciples. And we today are curious about the future also. The events of the past several years, the pandemic, the politics, the way our, our society seems to be spiraling out of control, it makes you want to throw up your hands and say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, I'm ready. Take me out of here. But within the pages of the book of Acts is the truth that opposition often brings opportunity for the gospel. The gospel shines brighter as the world grows darker. The truth is far more obvious when lies are so prevalent. And we need to stay in the present. We need to stay in the present. We need to take advantage of the long-suffering of God. He's not willing that any should perish. And as the Bible taught in the verse I shared earlier, if we're still here, that means there's somebody he intends for us to reach with the gospel. If he hasn't called us home yet, there's somebody that can still get saved. It's not wrong to study scripture. It's not wrong to know the prophecies. You'd have a very difficult time avoiding prophecy because more than a quarter of the Bible is prophecy. Approximately one-third of it has to still be fulfilled. And both Old and New Testaments are full of promises about the return of Christ. Over 1,800 references appear in the Old Testament. And 17 Old Testament books give prominence to that theme. 
Of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are more than 300 references to the Lord's return. That's one out of every 30 verses. 23 out of 27 New Testament books refer to this great event. For every prophecy on the first coming of Christ, there are eight on his second coming. You would have a very difficult time avoiding the topic of prophecy. But the thing that's important is not to be curious about the future, but to be active serving Christ in the present, sharing the gospel with the world. That's the emphasis of the book of Acts. A number of years ago, a retired NASA engineer wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. The book, which he self-published, placed the expected date of the rapture between September 11th and September 3rd, 1988, and was a massive bestseller. By the time the end of the year was reached, more than 4.5 million copies had been sold. The man was certain he had the date right. He said, only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. And I say that to every preacher in town, I would stake my life on Rosh Hashanah, 1988. His later books, predicting the rapture in 1989, 1993, 1994, didn't sell nearly as well as the first copy. But he kept right on making predictions despite the clear teaching of Scripture, as Jesus even says in Acts chapter 1, we're not meant to know the time and date. It's not for us. That's not our focus. We do live in some exciting and even fearful times. There are literally prophecies falling into place all around us. But instead of retreating to our mountaintops, we should be running to the world with the message of the gospel. Why? Time runs short. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're running out of time. There's four facts you need to remember this morning. The first, Christ is still at work. He just got started with, what he, with his earthly ministry. He's still working in the world, in the church, and in the lives of his people today. And you ought to, as a Christian, see evidence of that in your own life. Jesus Christ is alive. That's the second thing you need to remember. He's alive. And you can know him and you can grow in him every single day. You can grow deeper in your relationship with him. Are you? He's still working and he's still alive. And the, sec- uh, the third thing is this, that God never intended for you to step into the world in your own strength. Not even the, the 11 disciples that spent all of that time with Christ were allowed or told to step into the world under their own power. They were told to wait in Jerusalem. God has given us his spirit. Are you walking in the Spirit? Do you need to spend more time in your Jerusalem before you step out into the world? And the fourth thing is this, don't give up on the world just yet. Heaven is real. Eternity is close at hand. Christ will return, but we're not there yet. And there's still work to be done. It's time to do it. There may only be a little bit of time left, but as long as we are still here, there is someone that God wants us to reach with the gospel. It's all right 
to know the prophecies and get excited about the things that are coming. But our focus is on the mission, which we'll study next time. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to have our invitation time. I don't know how God has spoken to you this morning, that I trust that he, but I trust that he has. Maybe you're here this morning and you've realized that God is indeed drawing you. You need to be saved. You know, we would be thrilled to take a Bible and just show you from the Bible how you can know for sure that your sins are forgiven and you have eternal life in heaven. That would make our year to answer your questions and to talk to you about salvation. We'd be thrilled to do that. Maybe you're here and you are saved, but you know, you don't see much evidence of growing in Christ, knowing Christ. Maybe you've been walking under your own power every single day. And God has just spoken to your heart about spending time in your Jerusalem, walking in the Spirit. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've been so caught up with the future and the unknowns and the problems of our society that has taken your focus off the need that people have for the gospel. We want to give you some time to do business with him and invite you to come as we have our song of invitation this morning.